Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is a National Book Award winner and the director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. His book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, topped the New York Times bestseller list after the murder of George Floyd. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and on this episode of Created Equal Season 3, Writers on Race, we'll hear my conversation with author Ibram X. Kendi. It was founded on the principle We hold these truths to be self-evident That all men are created equal That all men are created equal All men are created equal Let's start with this idea of the journey from from where you were to being an anti-racist. In this book, uh, you you make this about you know deliberate choices and uh, deliberate action. Talk about how that unfolded in your life. Well, I think it unfolded in my life in many ways through either a series of mirrors in which I had been saying things. So, to give an example, I had been saying that there was something wrong with with black people. And I didn't realize that was a problem. But when when I heard someone else say it, and I felt and I recognized that what they were saying was wrong, it suddenly put up a mirror to what I was saying until I realized that what I was saying was wrong too. Or, of course, other people who 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 recognized and you know what I was doing and tutored and mentored and challenged me. To, to be anti-racist. And so really it's these mirrors and these mentors that were critical, I think, in my own journey. Mm. And uh, let's talk about that term you're using, anti-racist. How does that differ from someone saying they're not a racist? So typically, as you know, people say I am not racist when someone charges them <laughs> as being racist. Right. And so the typical response is I'm not racist. What an anti-racist would say when someone charges them with being racist is, well, here is the definition of a racist idea, of a racist policy, of a racist. Let me apply that to what I just said or did. In fact, what I did or did not was indeed racist. But what historically has happened, I think, for many people is instead of assessing themselves, people reflexively deny their own racism. And I think what people also don't realize is that white nationalists deny their racism. Jim Crow segregationists deny their racism. Slaveholders and eugenicists deny their racism. That, in fact, the heartbeat of racism itself is denial. And so I think not racist has historically been a term of denial when anti-racists have fundamentally accepted who they were and have been trying to be someone different. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think we can't have this conversation without placing it in the modern context, in the immediate modern context. I mean, you think about the things that people say about race right now. People like the president of the United States, who says he's the least racist person that you could ever know. Someone like uh, Joe Biden saying he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. Uh, the, these ideas of the, the deflection or the defense of uh, against being called a racist uh, is a way of, I, I think, moving the conversation away from the kinds of things that you're talking about, which is how do you fight back against racism? It becomes this, this kind of gotcha game of 
um, uh, you know, who's culpable and, and, and who's not. And that doesn't, it's a conversation that can't progress at, uh, past a certain point. It isn't. And, 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 and I think that's why really the term not racist and even identifying ourselves as not racist really traps us into passivity and into defensiveness. And, and I think we should also recognize two things that are going on that I think people don't necessarily realize that I tried to unpack in, in how to be an anti-racist. The first is people typically are led to believe that racist is like a fixed category, it's an identity, it's a tattoo. So when they say they're not racist, they of course are saying, don't tattoo that R word on my head <laughs> for the rest of my life. Uh, and, and secondly, I said R word because in many ways the term racist has been conceived of as like an attack, as like a racial slur. But I think what people don't realize is it was actually white nationalists who were typically preaching to white Americans that racist was a racial slur Mm. so that they can continue to manipulate white people with their racist ideas so that they can essentially join their movement. And we see what's happening now with the rise of white nationalists in this country. Let's talk a little about uh, your book, which begins with an MLK speech competition. Uh, that you write, when you recall the racist speech you gave, you are, quote, flush with shame. Talk about that competition and talk about that moment in your life. Sure. So, yeah, I was a senior in high school in, in Northern Virginia, and my county, Princeton County, outside of Washington, D.C., had, had an annual Martin Luther King oratorical contest. And the way it was set up was each high school had a, its own competition, and then the winners from each high school competed in this countywide competition, and the finalist spoke at MLK Day. And I was one of the finalists, and I spoke at MLK Day 2000. And this was, of course, at the tail end of the 1990s, mm-hmm. which was, if there was ever a decade in which people across races and people across ideologies were saying that one of the central problems racial problems in this country is black youth, it was the 1990s. Mm-hmm. That was a decade of the so-called super predator. Mm-hmm. That was a decade in which people were talking about young black girls and teenagers having too many babies. And so I internalized those ideas and ultimately repeated them back during that speech. And so during that speech, I talked about black youth not valuing education, black youth trying to climb the high tree of pregnancy. I, I basically expressed all of these notions of internalized racism. And of course, when I repeat, when I think back of that speech, you know, of course, I'm deeply ashamed. And I also realized that internalized racism is, in fact, the real black on black crime. Mm. And talk about this journey for you as an African-American, um, this idea that confronting your own misunderstandings or misnomers about race um, is something that uh, that a lot of people don't necessarily think African-Americans do or need to do? Well, I think first and foremost, we should think about the effects that racist ideas, anti-black racist ideas have on any mind, including mm-hmm. black minds. Mm-hmm. And, and what the effect of these ideas is it causes black people, it causes any group of people 
to say that the problem is black people. And when you think that the problem is black people and not racist policies and powers, you are essentially not going to challenge racist policies. If anything, you're going to spend your time attacking or trying to civilize black people. And, and so it has a very real effect on black resistance to racism, just like it has a, a very real effect on anybody's resistance to racism. And, and so for me, as I became more anti-racist, as I began to conceptualize that the problem was policy and not people, the more I began to sort of challenge racism itself. We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, we'll have more of my conversation with Ibram X. Kendi. You say you're both hopeful and hopeless about the legacy of racism in America. I, I would love for you to, to expand on, uh, on that notion. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Sure. So I think the hopelessness stems from the obvious fact that Today is the 400-year anniversary of the first sort of documented arrival of, 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 of African people uh, in what later became, of course, the United States. And I should say the British colonies that later became the United States. But in ra racism, 400 years later, is still pervasive. It's still powerful. It's still spreading in certain types of ways. And so for somebody to reflect on its existence for 400 years and its power 400 years later, it's, it's hard to not feel hopeless. But at the same time, I recognize that in order to eliminate racism, in order to be anti-racist, I have to be hopeful that you literally have to believe in the possibility of change in order to, to basically have the wherewithal to bring about that change. Hmm. And are we are we moving as we have this more public discussion? Do you think we're moving toward that kind of reckoning that you're talking about, or are we just agitating in a way um, that that digs people uh, sort of further into their entrenched positions? So I actually think, in, in I actually think having conversations, even if the conversations are hard and harmful and painful, that that can still be productive and constructive. And obviously, I think it should extend more than conversation and, and it should extend into power and policy. But in terms of conversations, I don't think we should measure it by the pain. I mean, it's just like, you know, at the end of the book, I, I, I sort of compare metastatic cancer that I experienced to to metastatic racism. And it is a painful process going, healing, being healed from metastatic cancer. And I think we have to recognize it's going to be a painful process healing this country from metastatic racism. Talk about the way we use language and whether it exacerbates race. Oh, without question. And, and I think not only the language we use to talk about racism, obviously, but even the language we use to talk about each other. Um, 
And, and I think that that is dead on. I mean, you have political figures right now classifying people who are fleeing violence as rapists and animals. And of course, when people hear animal rapists and when people hear the term invader, that is a violent term. Mm-hmm. And so some people are going to think that mass shooting people who are invading my state is actually a form of self-defense. Mm. You talk a lot in your book about the steps that people can take in their everyday lives to, to, to be anti-racist. For a lot of people, you know, the opportunity to do that doesn't necessarily present itself in an obvious way. You grow up in a community where everybody looks like you and where race is not discussed very often. What are people in that situation supposed to do? Well, I think first and foremost, we should sort of recognize that even when race is not being discussed in a obvious sort of way, it's still being discussed. It's still there. And what I mean by that is if you have racial inequities in the United States that are persistent and that are widespread and no one explains the complexities behind those inequities, which are usually policies and power, then it's only naturally natural that a young person is going to say, well, it must be because that person must have less because they are less. And so then someone, by not talking to them, sort of develops these sort of ideas, which are ultimately racist, to explain reality. And so I think we, in a way, have to almost untrain ourselves, or I should say train ourselves to be someone different, train ourselves to be anti-racist, And the way we do that on a daily basis is either we're going to truly accept the racial equality of humanity as an anti-racist or we're not. And once we do that, we should recognize that any racial inequity we see, it can't be because there's something wrong or even right about a racial group. It must be the result of a racist policy. And then it becomes our job to uncover that policy or to support the organizations and powerful figures that are uncovering and challenging and replacing those racist policies. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, professor and director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. It was really great to have you here with us. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. On the next episode of Created Equal, I talk with Colson Whitehead, the two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Nickel Boys and Underground Railroad. You know, we've never, we've never escaped our, 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 our terrible situation with regards to race. And so if you write about um, racial inequities, uh, they're always current because we, we never make any real progress. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian. And our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stange and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.